Al Jazeera Podcasts. Washington is floating plans for Gaza even as Israel is waging its war. In yet another Middle East visit, the US Secretary of State has been rallying support from regional players. But why isn't the Biden administration first trying to reach a ceasefire? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan, and this is the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. We're joined from Cairo by Saeed Sadek, uh, who's a political sociologist at the Egypt-Japan University. From uh, New York, we're joined by Chris Hedges, the former Middle East bureau chief of the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner and author, and also joining us from Montreal, Moin Rabani, who's a co-editor of Al-Jadalia, which is the online magazine of the Arab Studies Institute and a veteran Middle East analyst. Gentlemen, welcome to you all. Chris, I want to start with you first, picking up on, on Finton's question. Um, to what extent is Israel at the moment running rings around the US? I mean, who really has the upper hand in their relationship and why? Well, Israel has always had the upper hand, not only in terms of this administration, but past administrations. Remember when Joe Biden was vice president, uh, Barack Obama was pushing through the Iran nuclear deal. The Israeli government, led by Netanyahu, did not like it, got himself invited to Congress, uh, essentially bypassing the White House to denounce the deal. Congress, in effect, has been bought and paid for by uh, the Israel lobby. Uh, Biden is one of the largest recipients of aid from the Israel lobby. He, it is a very powerful, the most powerful foreign lobby in the United States, and politicians that run afoul of it uh, not only lose support, but then find that lobby organized against them. Uh, the Israel lobby has said that they will uh, put upwards of $100 million to defeat candidates such as Rashida Tlaib, who has been outspoken about the genocide in Gaza. So it's an extremely powerful force uh, that, uh, that politicians defy uh, warily, uh, and uh, at this point, uh, hardly at all, um, given the kind of system of legalized bribery that uh, defines the United States electoral system. Chris, then what are we to make of President Biden's words? You, you heard them in that report. He said he'd been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza, using all that I can to do that, he said. He could end this today, couldn't he, by uh, withdrawing military aid and threatening to withdraw diplomatic protection uh, at the UN. Yes, he could end it today, uh, but he has no intention, of course, of ending it at all. Uh, we just saw with the South African uh, uh, case uh, coming uh, to the court uh, for genocide, uh, the denunciation, I think uh, Blinken called it meritless, uh, one has to... I, I spent 20 years overseas as a foreign correspondent, and my job was really to uh, report off the ground, which was almost universally in defiance of the rhetoric coming out of Washington. For example, I spent five years covering the war in El Salvador during the Reagan administration, and they used much the same language that the Biden administration is using about Gaza respect for human rights while military regimes in El Salvador and Guatemala were massacring people, uh, you know, upwards of dozens of people a day, uh, while the death squads in El Salvador were killing, uh, armed and backed by the United States, were killing anywhere between 700 and 1,000 people a month. So uh, that disparity between rhetoric 
and reality. One has to look at what they do, not at what they say. Biden understands that internationally, uh, this has certainly damaged the United States and domestically, because not only among uh, Arab Americans has his uh, support fallen to, to below 20 percent, I think the last poll was about 17 percent, but also among uh, young voters. And it's a very precarious election. Uh, the polls go, well, actually has Trump ahead at the moment, but only by one or two percent. So he can't afford to lose that margin. So that's why you see the rhetoric. Uh, but yes, you're exactly right. He could end this today. Uh, they have no intention of ending it today. They know very well what Israel is doing. Uh, and this, just to close, this level of bombing, I was in Sarajevo during the war. Uh, that was three to four hundred shells a day, about four to five dead a day, two dozen wounded a day. Journalists, by the way, were also targeted in the same way they are being targeted in Gaza by Israel. Um, and that gives you a, a kind of a juxtaposition, the saturation, the level of bombing where we're seeing hundreds of dead a day uh, just is a window into how savage uh, this attack is, and it is really meant to make, as they've been quite upfront, to uh, make Gaza uninhabitable. And the United States is well aware of that, including, of course, using starvation, uh, destroying sanitation systems, so the spread of infectious diseases. I mean, this is something we never saw in, in Sarajevo as bad as it was. Moan Rabani, what, what do you make of, of what Chris was saying? How badly have U.S. foreign policy objectives in the region been hurt by its refusal to support a ceasefire, that it's continuing to offer weapons and political support to Israel. Well, I think he's exactly right in identifying um, the, the vast dis disconnect and disparity between stated policy objectives on the one hand, uh, rhetoric on the other, and um, uh, actions. So at, at one level, yes, you know, there is a lot of propaganda of the U.S. claiming that it is um, implementing the policies it has adopted in order to promote um, peace and human rights and the rule of law and all of it. And that we can uh, dismiss with a wave of the hand. But when we look at U.S. policy objectives, I think we should take those uh, seriously. But here we see the um, vast disconnect between talk and action. And I would slightly disagree with Chris Hedges in the sense that, yes, the Israel lobby is very powerful, and yes, it does intimidate a lot of politicians. But in this administration, I think you're also dealing with true believers. You're dealing with people who don't have to be persuaded or intimidated because they genuinely believe in what they're doing. Um, they are fully behind Israel's military onslaught, what is now being contested as a genocide at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And Biden, Blinken, McGurk, and others, these are people who look at Palestinians and perceive them as irrelevant human scum uh, that need to be gotten out of the way so that uh, U.S.-Israeli policy objectives can be met. But the other point I would make is, while there are genuine differences uh, between the Israeli and U.S. governments, I think the more important point is that Israel can proceed in the full knowledge and with the full consequences that Washington will not impose any consequences on Israel for it pursuing um, actions and policies that contradict the U.S. agenda and U.S. policy objectives. And in that context, um, Israel does have the upper hand. So, Moen, uh, 
What, if anything, did Secretary of State Blinken achieve on this, his fourth visit to the region? Was the, the broader strategy, perhaps, uh, damage control as far as US foreign policy in the Middle East is concerned? Well, it seems that every time uh, Antony Blinken goes to the Middle East, um, U.S. influence uh, goes down a few notches um, uh, and U.S. credibility evaporates. Because here you have someone, for example, one of his main objectives on this trip appears to have been um, uh, to seek to prevent a broader regional escalation um, of this conflict. Well, there's an obvious way to do that, and that is to end the Israeli genocide in the Gaza Strip. But rather than addressing that, he came out in full force in support of what he termed uh, Israel's right to defend itself. Um, he repeated all the tropes about human shields and hiding in hospitals and schools and all the rest of it, um, and sought essentially to blame everyone but Israel uh, for the regional escalation while knowing full well that the only reason other parties are participating in this conflict is in support of the Palestinians and in order to end uh, this genocide and this siege. So again, you know, people look at what he says, they look at what the U.S. does, and they see a complete disconnect and find it increasingly difficult to take anything that Blinken says seriously. Because as the saying goes, um, look at what I do, not at what I say. And then, if I may, also this this you know other um, phrase he constantly uses: reducing Palestinian civilian casualties. Well, it would be useful to hear from him what level of Palestinian civilian casualties, how many bombed and killed Palestinian children, is acceptable to Washington, so that we have a better idea of where the line between acceptable casualties and unacceptable casualties lies. Picking up on that, um, uh, Saeed Sadek, how much uh, responsibility does the US have to bear for the suffering uh, and the vast number of women and children killed by Israel's indiscriminate bombing? From the beginning of this conflict, we have seen President Biden and many top American officials attending the war cabinet in Israel. So the US is not uh, neutral. It is part of this war that is happening. And it had provided immediately uh, military aid, financial assistance, a lot of uh, support, even diplomatic uh, uh, protection at the UN Security Council, and all attempts to uh, impose a ceasefire or have any ceasefire, uh, the US had always been objective. And so uh, people in the area are now seeing uh, the, uh, in naked eyes that this is not an Israeli-Palestinian war. It is America's war against the Palestinians, and the weapon is Israel. This is the tool that it is being used. Uh, so, of course, the credibility of the U.S. had now been exposed. The distrust and, uh, uh, you know, belief that uh, the U.S. is really into peace and human rights is gone. Uh, people now do not believe uh, that uh, all this issue about democratization, human rights coming from the U.S. are true, because we don't see that this is being done or applied uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, 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 Israel also lost a lot in this uh, conflict uh, from being the James Bond of the Middle East. It has become Dracula of the Middle East, and with American support. 
And we are all waiting to see what will the American do if the International Court of Justice would issue a ruling to, 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 to call for a ceasefire in, in, in Gaza, and if the U.S. will take this, uh, will, will veto such a ruling at the U.N. Security Council if okay. Israel decides not to honor it. Said, what will Secretary of State Blinken have been told on Thursday in uh, Cairo? What will he have, uh, what will he have said uh, there in, in Egypt and, and in Jordan? Is anyone listening? Is anyone interested in U.S. foreign policy objectives in the region? Uh, I think this is the fifth time uh, Blinken comes to the area and he repeats the same stuff. Uh, and the Arab leaders who met in Aqaba just before he came uh, uh, Sisi and uh, King of Jordan and the uh, Palestinian Authority chairman, they all agree that uh, they would not uh, accept uh, the deportation of the Palestinians, exodus of the Palestinians. They want a ceasefire, immediate ceasefire, and this is what they want from the American. And, you know, for, for Blinken, most likely he's going to tell them that he is putting some pressure on the Israelis to reduce the, the bombing, to reduce the number of killing, as our uh, colleagues had uh, mentioned before. Uh, so this is what uh, he, he would be all the time repeating the same stuff. But we all understand that if the United States wanted to stop this war, they can just uh, lift their hand at, at the UN Security Council and let uh, the international community put pressure on Israel. Uh, without any protection from the veto. Suspend the, the, the aid that you are bringing uh, to Israel, $4 billion a year, plus all this uh, military cooperation, if they really want. But otherwise, this is an election year for the United States. It is also difficult for uh, Netanyahu, who wants to stay in power, and you know he's the king of Israel uh, after Ben-Gurion. And so he doesn't want a ceasefire, because a ceasefire would mean the end of his reign and maybe the whole coalition. So he wants to expand. And so all, even the talk about that the United States doesn't want the expansion of uh, this conflict, uh, you know, the, who is expanding the conflict? It is Israel that is expanding the conflict. Okay. It is Israel that is coming in Lebanon and other places. Chris, one of the stated aims of the trip was to pressure states uh, with influence in the region not to allow groups aligned with Iran to broaden the conflict. Um, how will that message have been received? Why should Israel's regional neighbours be tasked with preventing a conflict which, as you pointed out and uh, Said pointed out, uh, the U.S. could could stop tomorrow uh, by pressing, putting pressure on Israel to, to to stop the bombing. Yeah, I think that if you look at Hezbollah, if you look at Iran, they've acted with incredible restraint, uh, given especially the capacity of Hezbollah to inflict real serious damage on Israel. I don't get a sense that uh, either Hezbollah or Iran wants a regional war. I think, of course, the Arab. Uh, world is rightly concerned that this could spread. You have Israel carrying out targeted assassinations, not only against Hamas leaders, but Hezbollah leaders in Lebanon. You have the bombing of the airports in Damascus and Aleppo. Uh, th these are provocations. Uh, and uh, there, there could come a point. I mean, I covered a lot of conflicts just because you have uh, states in the region that don't want the conflict uh, doesn't mean they can't be pushed over the edge. So uh, on the one hand, I think that is probably sincere. They don't want a regional war. On the other hand, I think, as we have all uh, mentioned, 
uh, it's uh, almost impossible for Washington to restrain the hand of Netanyahu. And we have had Israeli military leaders talk about this war as an access, uh, AXIS, that it's, a, that it's uh, not just a war against Hamas, although, of course, it's not a war against Hamas, it's a war against the Palestinian people, but it's also uh, a war against hostile elements within the region. So, uh, yeah, I find these provocations quite frightening uh, because there, there are limits. Uh, but I do think that both the United States, along with the regional players, I mean, I think the one exception would be Israel, do not want to see the conflict spread. Uh, for Netanyahu, yes, as, as, as others have pointed out, uh, the, the longer conflict continues, whether it's in Gaza or southern Lebanon, uh, the longer he is ensconced in power. And uh, I, I know BB, I covered him. Uh, the the uh, power is the be-all and end-all of Netanyahu, which is why he formed the most extremist government in Israeli history made up of these ultra-nationalist and Zionist bigots that have all heirs of the Kahana, the Kok Party, out of Mer Kahana, uh, uh, who have long called for the total ethnic cleansing of Gaza. I mean, one of the things that's so fascinating about this horrific uh, assault is that the Israeli leadership is quite upfront uh, that the genocidal rhetoric they use uh, is out in the open, not only in Hebrew, but also in English. Moen, uh, Blinken spoke of working together with regional, ally, uh, regional allies to, uh, to build a lasting peace. Uh, of course, it remains unclear when that will happen or what role each nation is going to play in that, as we heard in our report. How keen do you think would regional players to be playing a role, especially if Hamas is excluded? Will the PA really end up running Gaza? Does, it, does the PA have any credibility with anyone? Well, as I understand um, U.S. intentions, the plan is to give a virtually unlimited supply of U.S. weaponry to Israel... Um, to essentially wipe the Gaza Strip off the face of the earth and to then present the invoice for the reconstruction of that territory um, to, to the Arab states. And this is clearly a non-starter, particularly because a second element of that, as, as you just mentioned, involves installing the Palestinian Authority into the Gaza Strip uh, to resume its administration of the Gaza Strip under Israeli auspices, performing a very similar role to that which it performs in the West Bank, which is basically um, ensuring the security of Israel's um, occupation and um, taking care of health and education and, and, and nothing else. Um, I think the Arab states have made very clear that any role they play has to be an organic part of a credible political plan to resolve this conflict. And I think by that they mean um, a credible plan to achieve a two-state settlement. Well, the problem here is irrespective of what, what one does or doesn't think about a two-state settlement, you can't have a two-state settlement without an end to the Israeli occupation. And um, the past uh, half century, has conclusively demonstrated, definitively demonstrated, that neither the U.S. nor the European states are prepared to adopt any policy that challenges Israel's occupation and imposes a cost on Israel for prolonging its occupation. Now, regarding the second part of your question, um, no, the Palestinian Authority not only 
does not have any um, uh, credibility and does no longer has any capacity. It's virtually disintegrating in the West Bank, um, particularly in the context of the present Israeli uh, genocide in the Gaza Strip, yeah. okay. where the PA is either seen as a as a powerless Wait. spectator or as complicit. Well, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. Time is uh, against us on, on the program. I want to get a couple more questions in. Uh, Saeed, do the US and Israel have any inkling of an endgame, do you think, to this conflict? Any concrete plan? Israel's stated aim, of course, is to eliminate Hamas. It's never going to achieve that, though, is it? Not at all. This is a deep-rooted conflict. It is almost one century. This kind of social protected conflict can last for a long time. And we are not, uh, you know, uh, isolated in this geographic area. They go beyond. We have seen clashes in, in the U.S., in Europe, and uh, now you hear about uh, the Yemenis are getting involved. So this is very important to take into consideration. Uh, the day after Gaza, nobody has any solution unless you get the United Nations. Remember, when many independent, well, many you know, African countries got their independence, they, they had no authority or institutions. And here, the United Nations had this trust council that would take care of that. And of course, uh, if we have uh, the UN involved, uh, taking managing the West Bank and Gaza for a period of time and allowing for election and things like that, this would be uh, uh, the beginning of a solution. But you see, Israel and the United and the United States would never allow the UN to be involved or international uh, uh, organization because they want to to keep this conflict as it is. Uh, they are not happy with uh, uh, an end because they all all the time have this idea that maybe we are able to get rid of the Palestinians and have a really true Jewish Zionist state in uh, in, in Palestine. Chris. Um... We've got about two and a half minutes left on, on the programme. Coming back uh, to where we started, more or less, and, and who it is who has the upper hand in the relationship between the US and Israel, uh, I, I want to talk about the, the, the yawning gap between Washington's vision for post-war Gaza and what Israel is willing to accept. Well, and Washington is well aware of that yawning gap. It's not a secret. Uh, Netanyahu... And those in the government have been quite clear that there will be no Palestinian state, there will be no two-state solution, uh, that uh, Israel will have a security presence in Gaza. They're even talking about taking northern Gaza and turning it over to Jewish settlers. Uh, all of this, of course, uh, is in—it uh, uh, it contradicts uh, everything that Washington says it espouses. But I just want to go back to the point I think a lot of us have made, and that is that the rhetoric is meant to mollify the international community and perhaps to a certain extent uh, domestic voters. But uh, the reality, you know, is something not only very different, uh, but also uh, the reality of Israel's and of this partnership between uh, the United States and Israel. The United States and Washington is a full partner in this genocide and has proven it over and over uh, again. Uh, so, yes, and uh, the point about uh, Blinken in particular being a true believer, this is correct. Uh, uh, but politicians are either uh, cynically line up behind Israel because they don't want to face the cost, or Israel has been quite astute in placing figures like Blinken. I mean, remember, Blinken is 
is the head diplomat, uh, and yet uh, he has been pushing through arms transfers, bypassing Congress and telling people within okay. the State Department, All although right. there have been uh, protests, that they can't even use the word ceasefire. Okay. There, gentlemen, I'm afraid we will have to end our discussion. Many thanks indeed to all of you for taking part. Saeed Sadak, Chris Hedges, and Moeen Rabani. This episode was produced by Mohammed El Aishi, Fintan Monahan, Veronica Petroza, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Yasia Rahmani. The program was edited by Sarun Murali, Lyndon Guyan, Vanessa Keneally, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Friday for our next edition. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, science fiction writer Christopher Brown imagines a future where animals have the same rights as humans. If corporations have rights, why can't trees? If a corporation can be a legal person, why can't an elephant? An indigenous lawyer, Jack Fiander, takes the city of Seattle into tribal court on behalf of salmon for destroying their habitat with a dam. If it ultimately established that salmon have rights that can be violated just like people do, that would be pretty earth-shaking. The Rights of Nature on Necessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.